0: Thank you, Juan, for reading God's Word to us. And, and good afternoon again to all of you who've gathered to worship our God today. Church, I'm going to invite you to read the Apostles' Creed aloud together with me. Now, if you, if you can't affirm these words that we're projecting, don't feel pressured to read aloud. Feel free instead to silently contemplate these words. But if you do believe them, let's declare them together, even, even if your faith is weak. Don't hold back. Don't be silent. In fact, we, we're going to end the reading of the creed today with this humble plea, I believe, help my unbelief. Because you see, the Apostles' Creed is a tool that serves many purposes, it, it, and, and one of them is this, it can strengthen our faith, that is, God can strengthen our faith through the simple act of thoughtfully speaking these truths aloud in community, hearing one another do the same with us. So, New Hope Fellowship, let's read these words aloud. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I believe. Help my unbelief. May the Lord help us to deepen our trust in these truths that are revealed to us in inerrant scripture. You know, the Apostles' Creed tells us not just about the identity of the triune God, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it also tells us about the depths of his love. And that comes into clear focus in these lines that we're coming to today. He, that is the Son of God, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That's where we're parking today. There is God's love put on blast for you, spotlighted for us. And so my hope today is that you will leave this place convinced in, in, a, a, to your core that God loves you. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, convince us today of your love. You shouldn't have to convince us anymore, but, but we're so dull and, and we're distracted and, and some of us are so discouraged. Some here have grown skeptical of your, of your care and concern for them. So, some feel like they've sinned too much for you to love them. They've neglected you too much or they've, they've betrayed you or they've betrayed others so much that you can't love them. And some here feel like they've been so wounded and hurt in their lives that that you must not love them. How could you love them? If you love them, then then why would their lives look the way they do? Lord, confront us with your radical hesed love, that, that binding forever covenant commitment, and move us to trust you, to give up on chasing other loves, To confess all of that with you, with to to, to confess all of that to you with with confidence that you will welcome us. Openly, welcoming us, and you will rescue us from ourselves. Amen. We're gonna unpack those lines of the creed in just four parts today. First, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, then he was crucified, and then he died, and lastly, he was buried. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, the creed tells us of Jesus. Now, suffering in the life of Jesus began long before he ever met Pilate. After all, to be born in a a poor Jewish family in Roman-occupied Palestine meant to be born into a life of suffering. It came with the territory. But his suffering only compounded as he got older. He experienced suspicion and rejection from his family members. Later, he experienced suspicion and opposition from people with with religious authority. He was seen as a threat to them, and, and so they aimed wild accusations at him, trying to undermine him at every step. And then throughout his life, this man faced more powerful temptation than any of us has ever felt. He shared in the sufferings of those that he encountered. Throughout his life, he faced opposition and eventually betrayal from his closest friends. Abandonment from his closest friends. He was dragged by a crowd into the presence of, of this corrupt council made up of high priests and elders and scribes. These were were the most powerful people in his community. And he was dragged into their presence to be assaulted and condemned under the guise of a trial, but it really wasn't a trial. And then all this time he knew that their goal was to kill him. And all of that and much, much more is captured in what 2 Timothy 2.3, which we looked at last week, calls the sufferings of Christ Jesus. All that and much more. And all of that happened before he was ever dragged before this man, Pontius Pilate, who we just read about. This Roman governor who would eventually hand Jesus over to be whipped, torn apart, and then executed. That's what Juan just read to us about from Matthew 27. And then the verses that follow that section... They tell us that that Pilate's soldiers, they stripped Jesus. They they put a scarlet robe on him. They they put a crown made of twisted thorns on his head and and a reed in his hand. And, And at this point, it was all about humiliation. He claimed to be king, so they dressed him up like a clown king. And they bowed before him laughing connecting punches to his head, spitting on him. It was all about humiliation. In fact, some historians believe that based on the kind of, this may sound kind of tangential, but based on the kind of shrubs and trees that grow around that area where Jesus was crucified, it's very likely that the crown of thorns that was put around his head doesn't exactly look like what we imagine it looks like. We think of like a thin a thin kind of vine-looking thing with thorns, long thorns poking out around it, and and it's pressed on his head, and it caused him to bleed. That's what we often think. But the fact is that trees like that and shrubbery like that doesn't seem to grow in that area. And some believe that what happened there was something altogether different. There is a particular kind of plant that grows in that area that has these long thorns, thorns that can be over a foot long. And some believe that what happened was they took those thorns, long thorns, and twisted them together into a crown to put on his head. The reason I mention that is because it may have been less about making him bleed and feel pain, and it may have been more about just dressing him up like a clown king. A ruler would wear perhaps a, a crown of green leaves, a wreath on his head to denote honor. They put this crown of thorns. Thorns were a sign of the curse, a sign of death. They put him on his head. They put it on his head. said, this is the kind of king you are. King of death. About to go die. The king under a curse. And then they stripped him again. And all of this, all of this was what he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Under Pontius Pilate's authority. But his suffering would continue and it would culminate at the cross. And that's the second part that we're looking at today. He was crucified. He was crucified. And we need to read from scripture again here. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 27. I invite you to open up a copy of the scriptures. If you don't have one, you can read right here. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, that is, as the soldiers went out with Jesus, leading him to be crucified. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they'd offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. More mockery. More shame. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Now, to some of us, this scene can, can be simultaneously uh, familiar and foreign Familiar because some of us have heard it a thousand times, but it can also be, feel really foreign to us because I don't think any of us has ever witnessed a Roman crucifixion. Hopefully we've never witnessed any kind of crucifixion. And, and both of those things, they can keep us from, from really entering into the scene and feeling the full weight of it. So, so here's just a bit of detail about Roman crucifixion. People who are going to be crucified typically had to carry perhaps not an entire cross, but but a large wooden crossbar to their execution site. And the crossbar was then, when they arrived there, fastened to another long wooden post. And soldiers would hold the victim's arms down or, or tie them down and then drive one or two spikes into their hands, into a wrist or the hands, And then they drive one or two spikes into their feet. And then this heavy wooden structure would be lifted up and dropped into a hole in the in the earth. And there the victim would hang. Now these crosses were smaller than what we've seen in paintings. I don't think we need this quite yet, but they they these crosses are smaller than what we've seen. In paintings, they were actually probably 10 to 12 feet in length. And so when they dropped it down into that hole, the crucified victim would would stand, hang perhaps just one or two feet above eye level, right about here. So the passersby could look them in the face, spit in their face, hurl insults at them. They were close enough to hear the the gasps and the groans of the hanging victim. Stray dogs could come along and reach the feet of the crucified victims. Listen to what scholar Benjamin Myers says, and we'll read this quote. In the Roman Empire, crucifixion wasn't only about death. It was about public disgrace. The problem with getting yourself crucified wasn't just that it would kill you, but that it would humiliate you at the same time. Now, modern readers of the New Testament, that's us, we might assume that the worst thing about crucifixion was the physical suffering. But in a culture of honor and shame, the pain of the soul, humiliation, can be even worse than the pain of the body. To be crucified was to be cast out of human community. Rejected by God and the world, it was literally a fate worse than death. We might focus on the physical pain. Movies about the crucifixion focus on the physical pain. And the physical pain was intense and real. But the scriptures don't seem to focus on the physical pain. The scriptures seem to focus more on the shame. Keep that in mind as we read again from Matthew 27, continuing that passage in verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also, The chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. It wasn't just the the masses. Even the chief priests and the scribes and the elders didn't feel like they were above this sort of thing. They mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And that last insult, verse 43, strikes me as the the cruelest of all of them. Because what they're saying to Jesus is, God doesn't love you. You trusted him. But look at you now. You called him your father, but he doesn't want you. Let's keep reading. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that Matthew, the gospel writer, decided to leave in Jesus' native Aramaic language. He died. That's the third part. Let's read one more line of this account. In verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That is, he passed away. That's part three. He died. And in case there's any doubt, part four tells us, part four of the creed tells us, he was buried. He was buried and it might seem odd that the creed would uh, include that detail about burial. Of course he was buried. If he was dead, he was buried. But, but burial communicates something to us. It communicates to us finality. We've all seen movies where, where the hero kind of dies, almost dies, but not really. Like, like we think they're dead, but then surprise, they're, they're alive after all. Like King T'Challa, the Black Panther, who walks across this field. Everyone thought he was dead, but he's back to claim his kingdom, and he walks in shouting, as you can see, I am not dead. And half the theater gasps, and the other half saw it coming. But this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was dead, dead. Dead, dead. He was buried, eliminating any doubt. His corpse was prepared. It was wrapped up, put in the ground, probably the carved outside of a, of a hill, and, and, and it was sealed. He was done. He was not just tortured. He was finished. I have been at funerals. And I hope it's not insensitive of me to say this, to share this experience, and I hope it doesn't uh, trigger added grief in anyone's hearts, but I've been in funerals, and perhaps you have, where the bereaved are, are quiet and composed. The, the reality of their loss hasn't hit them yet, but when the casket of their loved one begins to descend into the ground and... and, and it's lowered and, and the ceremonial dirt is thrown on top of that coffin, that's when reality hits. That's when mourners see the body being swallowed up by the earth, that, that emotional dam breaks and, and waves of sorrow pour forth in, in a flood of grief. Because there's a finality to burial. You know It's over, as the earth swallows the body of the one you love. And so it was for Christ. He was buried, and so were all the hopes of his followers with him. For a season, just a weekend, until hope would burst forth once again when he exited that tomb. But that's next week's sermon. Today we dwell here. He was buried. The cell door slammed shut on Jesus, the condemned sinner. And I wonder if anyone is thinking, you, you said we would look at the love of God today, and all we've seen is pain and horror. Where's the love? Where's the love? Well, maybe you see it already. We're going to see it. And in order to see it, we have to ask the question, Why all this suffering? Why the injustice and the shame and the death? Just a few days earlier, before all this happened, Jesus was with his disciples when he spoke these prophetic words. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. He said those words, and I say prophetic because it's exactly what he would do. Lay down his life. Not just at the cross, but on that long road to the cross. In a sense, he was already laying down his life when he spoke those words to his disciples. As he walked down that long path through ridicule and beatings and suspicion and accusations and humiliation. And then finally, death. All along the way, Jesus was laying down his life. He was allowing himself to experience the pain, silently, opening himself up to all of it. Why? Because no one has greater love than this. For centuries, God had told his people that sin always leads To suffering in this world and in eternity. He had told his people through centuries that it always leads to loss and destruction. Sin results in the just wrath of God and separation from God, eternal death. And tragically, we didn't listen. We're all guilty of sin. That's why the world is such a mess. We are the problem, folks. The problem is not out there. It's not other people. It's not the other party. It's not the people of other religions that are the ultimate reason for the mess that we're in. We are the mess. Humanity, it's us. Our creator told us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself and we haven't done either of those very well. And what's it gotten us? At the global level, it's gotten us atrocities of every sort, fractured societies, suffering, disease. And what's it gotten us personally? It's gotten us broken relationships, shame over our failures, wounds that we are feeling and wounds that we're dealing out to others. But ultimately, our sin has left us separated from God and deserving his judgment. It's what God told us would happen all along. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he entered this world as a man. Jesus of Nazareth, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried for us, in our place. And in his suffering and death, we find acceptance with the God that we rejected and have rejected again and again and again. Matthew tells us that in the moment when Christ gave up his spirit, The curtain in the temple was torn. We sang about it. Curtain torn in two. That curtain represented the the barrier between God and humanity, between His holy presence, the full experience of His love eternally, and us, a sinful people. And in Christ's death, the automatic result of His death is that that curtain, the symbolic barrier, was torn to tell us that the real barrier was broken down. We now can find welcome with God. It's it's through Christ's act of love on the cross that we, the barrier is broken, so that we can experience even more love from God. You see, the, the Apostles' Creed confronts us with the greatest form of love. It's substitutionary love. It's the kind of love that will take your place. It's the kind of love that says, I would rather suffer than see you suffer. It's the kind of love that says, I will suffer and die so that you will not. Now, there's something about substitutionary love. You you, you might say, we love substitutionary love. It, It comes natural to us in a sense Parents, you see your child sick, you see your child hurting, and don't you think at times, I wish I could take his place. I wish I could take her place. Ryan Miller, former pastor here at New Hope Fellowship, some of you may know, he and his family have gone through intense suffering because of the the illness of their son. And I'm sure that as they see their son writhing in pain, confused, torn apart in a hospital room, I'm sure there have been so many times when, when, when Ryan has looked at his little boy and said, I wish, Lord, I could just take his place. Substitutionary love comes natural to us in a sense with those that we love most, but substitutionary love is even woven into our culture. You might say our culture is in love with it. It's in many of our films. I've noticed that it's in a lot of our kids' films. I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe it's because in our kids' films, like, like uh, if you've ever watched Big Hero 6, you ever watched Inside Out, The Iron Giant, that's my favorite. We, we see someone willing to lay down their life for someone else. And I wonder if sometimes that's in, it's in kids' movies because Those movie makers know that parents are going to watch that with their kids and they're going to connect with that because they're going to say, just like that hero gave up his life for that little girl, that little boy, man, I would do that for this little boy. I would do that for this little girl. It engages the family even when you have to watch those movies 50 times (laughs) because your kids keep wanting to watch it over and over again. They end with an act of substitutionary love where someone decides, I'll give up my life so you can live something about that that connects with all of us at a deep level. It's even in the songs that we sing. Some of you, I know I've mentioned this before, but some of you remember a song from a a few years back by Bruno Mars. I know we don't talk about Bruno, but it's okay to talk about this Bruno, I think. He's singing in this song about a woman that he loves, and and he sings, What what you don't understand is I'd catch a grenade for you, he says. I'd throw my head on a blade for you. I'd jump in front of a train for you. You know I'd do anything for you. I would go through all this pain, take a bullet straight through my brain. Yes, I would die for you, baby. (laughs) But you won't do the same. And as I've said before, this sounds like a very unhealthy relationship, but perhaps you can relate. And it makes sense to you, especially if there's someone for whom you would willingly suffer and die. Maybe there's someone for whom you would willingly suffer and die, and you wonder if they would actually reciprocate, they would actually do it for you. I know there are people in my life. If you see them suffer, you think, I wish I could take their place, and if I could, I would. All of these examples, whether in culture or in our own families, they all pale miserably in comparison to the love of God. Miserably fall short of his love. His love, which is, is, that's, is the love that motivated him not only to create us in his image, but to become one of us, to suffer to endure crucifixion, all the physical pain, all the shame, all the wrath of God, and die for us. And thereby absorb not only the humiliation, but the condemnation to become sin for us. This is love. And everything else is just a pale copy. Everything else is a It's derivative of it. It's a faint copy of it. Some of you may have been brought up to believe that Jesus died so that God could love you. God didn't love you, but Jesus died to make God love you. No, Jesus did not die to make God love you. He died because God loves you. He was motivated by love to send Christ, and Christ was motivated by love to come. That's why Ephesians 2, which I quoted earlier, says it's because... Because of the great love with which he loved us, that he had mercy on us, and that Christ came and gave us new life. First John 4.10 says, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. He didn't send his son so he could love us, he loved us and therefore sent his son. To be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That means that before the atonement had been made, God is loving us. And in love, makes the atoning sacrifice to rescue us. Romans 5 8 is, is, is perhaps even more crystal clear on this. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, that is still enemies of God. Still rejecting God. We were still outsiders. We were unholy. Christ died for us. Then. John Stott, in a fantastic book called The Cross of Christ, I recommend to all of you on the crucifixion, he says these famous words For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself man you see what he's saying we have all put ourselves where only God deserves to be that's the essence of sin we put ourselves where God deserves to be at the center of our lives at the center of everyone else's life we put ourselves in the place of authority over ourselves and others We, we put ourselves in the place of worship and in response what does God do He sacrificed himself for us. He put himself where only we deserve to be, in the place of condemnation, in the place of shame, in the place of suffering, crucifixion, death, and burial. So I want to end today with with asking you a question, an application question. I'll ask it in a couple of different ways. How are you responding to God's love How are you responding to God's love? Some of you have heard about God's love for a long, long time. What are you doing with it? Let's be honest. Let's be straight about this. When when you neglect or, or you reject Christ and his gospel, you are not just rejecting or ignoring a set of claims It's more than that. You see, when you look at the Apostles' Creed, for instance, and you say, I don't think I buy into that. That doesn't seem really relevant for me right now. What you're doing is not just rejecting a set of propositions. What you're doing, in fact, when you reject or ignore the gospel, is you're ignoring and rejecting the one who loves you more than anyone will ever and can ever love you. More than that, you're rejecting the one whose love is able to rescue you to give you safety and security forever. You're walking past him. Now walking past an old creed that may mean little to you, you're walking past the one. You're walking past Jesus. You're stiff arming him perhaps walking away from him. So ask yourself, why? Why am I doing that? Why would I do that? Why am I pushing away the God who made me? He was willing to become like me, to suffer and die for me. Why? We spend our lives chasing love, don't we? We all do, of one sort or another. We lose sleep at times wondering, why don't they appreciate me? Why don't they look at me? What what can I do to make him want me? What can I do for her to take me back? And all the while, Jesus says, look what I've done for you. If you'd only give up the chase and trust yourself to me, Savior, King, and Lord. So how are you responding to God's love? Are you neglecting? Are you apathetic about it? Or are you doubting his love for you? Do you look at what you're going through in your life right now, and you think, he must not love me. If he loved me, I wouldn't be experiencing all this. I wouldn't be suffering like this. Look, they doubted God's love for Jesus on the cross, didn't they? He looked abandoned. But in that very moment, father and son were united. United in the carrying out of their plan to rescue us. And if you've entrusted your life to Jesus, know that what what he experienced there guarantees that whatever you experience here and now, that suffering, it's not going to crush you. It's not going to be the end for you. Not the end of your story. He experienced ultimate suffering so that what you experience here and now will only prepare you and shape you to enjoy the blessedness he has for you eternally, stored up. And even in the suffering that you experience here, it's an opportunity to experience more of his power, his nearness, his love, in the middle of that suffering. So how are you responding to God's love? Are you doubting God's love because you feel like you don't deserve it? know this. God is not naive. Sometimes we see people falling head over heels into love with someone else. We're kind of like, okay, let's give this a few weeks and see what happens, right? We re- we're like, this person's just a little naive. They're walking, right? Fool's rushing, right? Fool's Russian to love. God's no fool. He's not naive. He knew what he was getting into with you. He was aware of the ways that you would dishonor him and disobey him. He saw your biggest falls. You may not know what your greatest failures have been. You may not even know if your greatest failure is really still ahead of you. But God knows. He always has. And still he suffered and he walked that long path to the cross, fully aware of of the full weight of your sins. He carried them. And he does not regret it. In fact, nothing you do could make him regret loving you and what he's done for you. He is steadfast. He is unchanging. And he welcomes you willingly, happily. Again, how are you responding to God's love? Receive it. Receive his love Entrust yourself to Jesus as Savior, King, and Lord. Entrust yourself to his love again or for the first time. And and let that, his love, motivate you to live for him, to follow and obey him. That's what God's love is meant to do in our lives. Your guilt and your shame cannot motivate you to follow and obey Jesus. Your guilt and your shame cannot motivate you to love God and serve him. Not over the long term. What motivates real devotion to God? Long term devotion to God. 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us, For the love of Christ compels us not my guilt and shame, but his love compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. Christ's death, his love compels us to live for him. God says, it's my kindness that leads to repentance. I'll end today with a verse from an old hymn, in part because we're about to take the Lord's Supper in a moment, and this hymn can help prepare us for that. The verse goes this way Praise we him whose love divine gives his sacred blood for wine, gives his body for the feast. Christ the victim, Christ the priest. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Was Christ a victim of injustice and brutality? Or was he a willing priest who sacrificed himself? The answer is yes. It's both and the victim and the willing sacrifice. The Lord's table communicates the love of God to us, intangible tasteable ways. We, we, you see, the, the Lord's Supper, it isn't just a reminder of his sacrifice. It's that, and it's also much, much more. It's, it's a multifaceted, rich ordinance. And among many other things, the Lord's Supper is a chance for us to receive his love again and again. Because even though Christ is not present here physically in the building... He is present spiritually every time his church comes to worship him and every time his church comes to take his supper. He's there. He's here welcoming us as we take the bread and the cup, offering himself to us to receive him and his love as we taste the bread and taste the cup. We plan to observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday now, as Alex mentioned last week, because for one, Christ's church seems to, from its earliest days, always to have uh, observed the supper and eaten the supper when they gathered on the Lord's Day. But we also want to do it weekly because we need to be confronted by his sacrificial love again and again in as many ways as possible. Aren't we prone to neglect the love of God for us in Christ? Aren't we prone to doubt it? or maybe maybe even just take it for granted, see it as irrelevant. God's Word and this sacrament are here to help us to say with Paul the Apostle, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, soften our hearts and enliven our minds to receive the great love that you've shown us, that you continue to pour out towards us. Lord, you can't do anything else to prove to us your love. You've done it all already. You've told us that if you were willing to give up your very son, why would you hold back any necessary and good thing from us? And so move us to trust you in response to your love, to receive it, and to be compelled by it to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.